Uh, good morning. I want to welcome back all of our dear uh, 242 folks from retreat and all those who were able to go. We thank God for every single one of you. And um, for all those who went and served, whether it was with music or cooking, we want to give them a big hand. So let's give them a hand. Thank you, everyone, for making a, our ministry so good. Um, and I was talking to Grace um, uh, Higa, who, you know, Grace and Kel did uh, bulk of the cooking for the whole group, and she was just amazed at the amount of food that was consumed, right? She was impressed. And, um, you know, and I said, oh, you don't know these, this new freshman class that's going in, you know, and uh, we're just grateful for uh, a blessed time. Uh, today we go into a, a text, and, you know, it's, uh, we know that uh, story the, the picture of the frog in the kettle, um, the frog that sits in a bucket of water or in the kettle of water and is warmed up a little by little. And the frog never realizes till it perishes in boiling water that they are dying in this way because it is so subtle and uh, they don't feel it if it's a little by little. And, um, and obviously that is a picture not just of the physical uh, experiences today but really of our conscience, our morality today, that over the years, and as we think back on 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and how society has evolved so quickly, and how our standards and the things that we believe have been challenged, and uh, that it's been watered down, and it's been getting warmer and warmer, and sometimes we as a church don't feel it. And uh, today I want to talk to us about how to deal with someone that we know is living in sin. And this is a kind of a very particular, very um, uh, specific topic, right? What's the background here is in the church in Corinth, and let me back up a moment, uh, in Corinth in general, uh, Corinth was known as a place where it was very liberal. Uh, uh, the people lived, and they thought of sex as something like just a simple appetite. If you want it, if you're thirsty or hungry, then you go and eat or you drink, and the same was the attitude towards sex. There was no meaning behind it. There was not much of morality behind it. There was no right or wrong behind it. Is if you felt like it, you just did it. And it was to the point that even today in the, uh, today in the English dictionary, uh, we have the word Corinthianize. It means, it comes from the Corinth, that it means to uh, live in a promiscuous way. And someone who is uh, Corinthianizing, right? It reflects back on the origin of that word is the region of Corinth and how the people live. So you can imagine the church is gathering in the New Testament days. And these churches are coming and people are coming to faith in Christ and they're gathering with all sorts of baggage, all sorts of different beliefs. And they were in a culture where everyone had all these uh, beliefs. And when you think about the description of Corinth, I mean, doesn't it sound like where we live today? Doesn't it sound like, oh man, parts of L.A. or parts of Northern California or some liberal city that we could think of or even especially our college campuses? And we think about that, that it is just an appetite. It is, it's like, a, um, uh, like an animal that just responds in the way that wants to feed itself. There is no right or wrong. There is no commitment. You do as you want to do. And that is the message that is out today, and that is here specifically. Now, uh, what is mentioned is Paul's responding to a report he has heard. 
a report of sexual immorality. Porneia is the word. Immorality. It is basically when you sum up all of the scripture uses of it, it is sex outside of a husband and wife. Porneia, sexual immorality. And the specific case that is mentioned, it is appalling just to read. It is something that uh, we would blush to read today. Uh, to be honest, I was like, I'm kind of glad this passage didn't land when it's family service with all our 12-year-old, you know, junior high boys and girls in here. Uh, Mom and dad would have a lot of explaining to do after. The story goes, there is a man who is with his father's wife. Not his mother, per se, but you could say it's his stepmother. So he is now in a sexual relationship with now his stepmother. And the description goes in verse 1 that you are boasting about this. But he goes, this is something even the pagans, and pagans was a word to describe those outside of the church, even the outsiders are blushing about this. Even they think this isn't right. And somehow the church was thinking it's okay. They are sitting in that pot of uh, boiling water, in the kettle of boiling water, and it is getting hot and they think it is okay. And this is what is happening here. Um, in the New Living Trans, uh, verse 1, let me read this. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not, even, that is not tolerated emo, even among pagans, for man has his father's wife. Uh, the condemnation here, Paul writes some strong words. Yet he is not just condemning the man and this woman, but he's condemning the church. He's telling the church, what are you doing about this? What is your response to this? And so he is, talking not, he is not talking to the world and saying, change the world around you, change the culture around you. But he's saying, look at the church. Look within. Look at how you respond to these things. That your conscience has become so watered down that you, you boast about this. Um, you know, it's interesting, right? The New Living Translation translates verse 1. I can hardly believe the report. He, the, the translator tries to get out what Paul is trying to say. He says, I am astonished. This is unbelievable. I can hardly believe the report of what is going on. This is happening within. And you guys think it's just fine. And Paul is writing a very strong uh, response to what he has heard here. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, translates, it says, it is widely reported. Everyone knows about this. And they are so casual about this. It is appalling that there is not something happening here. There is not correction here. We read this and he tells them how to respond. And we see today, how do we respond to this? How do we as a church, and let me uh, just share with us, this is, we are together. This is the church. When we come together, we hear the message together. We are part of the people of God. Um, sometimes, in, especially in Western Christianity, it's become, everything has become so individualized. How is your walk? How is your devotional life? What is God telling you? But really, what is God telling us? From the 18-year-old to the 58-year-old, what is God telling us? How ought should we live? How ought should we respond to something like this? How do we respond to the sin around us, especially if it creeps into the church? Um, I want to share these three 
uh, points with us. Number one is that we ought to respond by loving the sinner, hating the sin. Um, we've heard that phrase before, love the sinner, hate the sin. I want to elaborate on that thought a little bit. It says here, um, look at the response here. How they ought to respond versus how they are responding is in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the response. They are arrogant. Arrogant means that they think they know better. That's what arrogant means. The arrogant person says, oh, no, 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 I know better than you. The arrogant person says, no, 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 I'm smarter than you. And the people that were gathered were saying, God, I know better than you. Their arrogance wasn't simply saying to God, God, I know what is right or wrong. It's not you, it's me. And this was the arrogance. God, let me interpret what it is. And we see this often. We hear people say, oh, you know, well, my belief is that God would never say this. Or I think God would never do this. And we see, hear people speak on behalf of God today often. Without ever referencing the Bible or studying the Bible, they just come up with what they think God is like, what Jesus should be like. Without ever referencing or reading the Bible. And this is arrogance. He says, how should you respond? Ought you not rather to mourn? This is not something to discuss. This is not something to talk about. This is not something to be proud about. This is something you ought to mourn. And so the mourning part, the word to mourn, pantheo, is a word that means a deep sadness, a deep grief. It's a word that is used to describe a mourning over losing someone to death. It is this kind of deep sadness. Now, you say, what does that got to do with loving the person? It's the value of the person. If we value someone, and stay with me here, if we understand that they are made in the image of God, they're going to have eternal life, whether with God or separated from God, and they are an eternal being, we have to love them as an eternal being. Our number one focus as the people of God has to be now the eternal life of others. The spiritual life of others. We, if we view someone as simply an earthly being, or someone that's going to live here on earth, God willing, 80 years or 90 years, and we say, that's it, then we would only care about their earthly life. We would only care about their flesh and desires. And this is what they were doing. When they were now arrogant and not mourning, they were not considered with this couple uh, illegitimate couples' spiritual well-being. All they cared about was that I legitimize whatever they are feeling here. Because all that they do is they're just living for their flesh and desires. But we as the people of God have to think, this person's eternal's, eternal eter uh, life is at stake. How can I help this person to live in this way? You think about this, um, how we love someone Right? it's often the person that loves you will respond in spite of your feelings, opposite of your feelings. A good friend will tell you you're wrong to your face. A good friend will tell you, or a loving parent or, or a family member will tell you something and criticize you, even though it might hurt your feelings. And now think about this. All of us are always in need, right? We're always in need. You think about a good dentist. Think about a, a good mechanic. All right, let's say with mechanic here. A good mechanic, 
you have a knocking sound on your car and your car shivers every time you start it up or whatever. If you go to a good mechanic, the good mechanic does not care about your inconvenience and feelings. The good mechanic says, oh my gosh, we need to change the, the, the chain. We need a tune-up. You need to leave it here a week and it's going to cost you $1,000. And you might respond, as all of us would say, oh, that's terrible news. You're inconveniencing my whole life and it's going to cost me so much. Really, do you have to do this? And imagine if the mechanic said, oh my gosh, am I hurting your feelings? Right? Oh, you know what? I take it, you know what? It's all good. Just, yeah, go for it. Oh, you're, going to, you're driving to New York? Go for it. It's fine. You'll be fine. Go for it. No, the good mechanic says, I don't care. If you don't change this, the car's going to blow up. It doesn't matter what my feelings behind it is. But oftentimes, we get caught up in, well, what's the response? What do they think? Will they, and it comes down to this arrogance or pride because it's, will they like me? Do they accept what I say? Do they approve of my response to them? And how important it is that we speak in this way. And he says some harsh words. He talks about excommunication. Excommunication is kicking someone out of church. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's mentioned here. Sending someone out when they are continually living in sin. Handing them over to Satan is a, a phrase that is used. The, the idea of saying, oh, if you do not repent in the body of Christ, you have to go. And it says here in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved. Paul here is saying, you have to be concerned about the spiritual life of this person. Do not be so concerned about what he wants to do here and now. You have to save them from their sin. Now, everything we do, you think about all the good things that we do. Um, the good things in society, whether it's uh, social justice or, or doing good deeds or even going, we, we went on wonderful mission trips this summer and we did good things. We tutored those who lived in uh, poor parts and didn't have the education background or we go, went and helped people learn English and we drew people to the church and all of that. But the ultimate way to love someone is to consider their spiritual lives. It isn't just about what they will eat or what they will drink, but it is about where they will find their life satisfaction. This is their spiritual lives. So we ought to respond in love. And when someone is in sin and we know about this, and it's not about exposing them, it's not about judging them, but it's about to say, I love this person. And we have to value them as eternal beings made in the image of God. Say, how can I make sure that they have to repent? Who wants to go and tell someone to do this? You know, over whatever my 30 years of doing pastoral, 25 years of doing pastoral ministry, I've had to excommunicate, right? Only a few people out of the church. It was, I, I couldn't, I lost sleep over it each time. And I was getting criticized for being judgmental, mean, what, who, what kind of church is this, where's the love, all of this stuff. And I heard this over and over. And I, I, those are the, the memories that, that, when I think back, it really aged me in a way. There was, it was so difficult. 
I don't want to be someone to tell someone you can't come to church. Now, if it was my church, all I would care about is if everyone liked me, that's it. I would tell them, do as you please. But this is not my church or your church. This is the Lord's church. And so to be a steward of the Lord, I have to keep going, what does the Lord want me to do here? And if I'm going to manage his church well, if we are going to manage it well, we have to do as he wills. Because if it's mine and it's up to me, I might say, hey, knock yourself out. But it is the Lord's church, and every time I have to tell someone, if you don't repent, you'll have to step out of the church. And I've gotten, uh, you know, letters and threats and hate mail and, you know, just from the people that were around. I had people gossiping and slandering. Who does he think he is, right? Does he think he's better? Does he think he's wiser or holier? And I've heard all of this. It's something I hope I never have to do again. But it is because this is the Lord's church. And to be faithful to the Lord is to be faithful to what he wants. And so this is... We say, go, repent, and come back. That is the purpose of excommunication, that they would repent and come back, that their spirits would come back alive and they would live in this way. So are the Corinthian, is the Corinthian church, are they loving this person by simply embracing whatever lifestyle they're in? No. They don't need to guide them and think of them and treat them as spiritual beings. They have to be more concerned about their relationship with God than their relationship with one another or with them. And so we see this here. To love the person is to value them as who they are, as eternal spiritual beings. The second thing is we have to respond by becoming who we are. Um, what I mean by that is God calls all of us to be his people. The Bible uses the word saints. He describes you as a saint. So in, in salvation, you are saved and uh, theologians will say, positionally, you are perfect. When Jesus looks at you and he thinks about you, he says, you are perfect to come in. Practically, the theologian will say, you are imperfect. You still sin. You are in the process of what theologians call sanctification. You are becoming who you are. This passage here, uh, verse 6 and on, describes... Uh, as, 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 you have to pay a little attention to this. It talks about bread, right? Leaven and the bread and Passover. And this is a lot of Old Testament stuff. Stay with me here, right? Think about this. It, it says, you're boasting. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? No. Uh, verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So this goes back, let me explain this a little bit. This goes back all the way to Exodus. This goes back to now when the Passover happened, the last of the plagues, and now the blood of the lamb was painted on the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over that house, and salvation would come. And the people of God escaped Egypt during the Passover. And when they were escaping, they had to do it in such haste that the bread that they are going to take with them to survive, they couldn't wait. So when you put leaven in, leaven was a little bit of the old dough. It had some bacteria, and you put it into the new batch, it would make it puff up. Right? Um, it would take a long time. 
I don't know about you, my favorite bread is all the puffy, soft, like Hawaiian king bread, right? I mean, remember during COVID, the COVID, the, the nicest part was everyone was baking bread, bringing loaves to church, and here's sourdough, you know, eat it with your doggone coffee, and, you know, everyone was just doing that during COVID, and, oh, I had all this bread. I don't like bread without leaven. It is dry. It is bitter. It, it uh, soaks up all the saliva in your mouth as soon as you put it in. It's hard to chew. It's not the soft bread you want at a fancy restaurant. How many of you, when you go to a fancy restaurant, right, just fill up on the bread, right? It's so good. It's warm and soft. So what he's saying is, during the Passover, you had to leave in such a hurry There was, you the people of God, the Israelites, had to run away so quickly that they couldn't wait for their bread to be puffy. They couldn't go through the process. They just took the unleavened bread and they went. And so now afterwards, as they would recall Passover, Passover would always be followed by a week of the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread. And the people of God would eat this unleavened bread for a week. And as they they would eat the unleavened bread, and it would be hard to chew. The kids are saying, this doesn't taste good. I want the soft bread. I want the leavened bread. Why are we eating this bitter bread? It was a reminder of what? Their identity. It was a reminder of their salvation. That Jesus was the Passover. That he is over me. This is who I am. This is our identity. Don't forget that. Whether you feel it or not, you are a child of God. You are a Christian. We are the saints. We have to live this out in this way. There's a a, a story a little while back of a mistaken identity that had happened about a lion called the, whose nickname was the Bone Digger. Lion the Bone Digger, right? Bone Digger the Lion. Okay, that's the right way to say it. Okay, so we have a picture, I think, here. That's Bone Digger. What a name for a lion, right? It sounds like a lion's name, the king of the jungle. What's your name? Bone Digger. Oh, my gosh, right? You know, like, whoa, stay away. Now, it's funny because that is not something that I made this picture. You see next to Bone Digger is his best friends, the two dachshunds. The one, the brown one, his name is Milo. Milo sounds like a dachshund's name, right? Milo. Bone Digger was adopted as a cub, raised by the owner next to Milo and his friend. This lion, the Bone Digger, thinks he's a dachshund, right? And so there are... uh, you can, if you're bored tonight, you can go and Google this, and there's videos. Uh, they're licking each other's face. They're sharing a meal. Milo is so naive, he doesn't realize that if Bone Digger accidentally just licks up the wrong part, he could just eat him like a snack, right? And uh, Bone Digger doesn't realize that he is the king. He waits to eat, right? Aggressive little Milo comes and takes the food, and he whimpers and waits, right? Can you believe that, right? And I share this silly illustration here because you say, oh, how foolish. The king of the jungle, with an impressive name, is hanging out, is waiting on, is running around and playing with two dachshunds. 
we could argue the dachshunds out of the, all the dogs are the least fierce, right? I mean, that, that was the one dog. If I was a burglar and a dachshund came, I was like, oh, it's, it's, I'm not afraid of this dog. There's, it's at least impressive, right? And yet he's hanging out. R.C. Sproul talks about this word saint. The saints of Scripture were called saints not because they were already pure, but because they were people who were set apart and called to purity. Dr. David Paulson says, God accepts us just as I am, despite who I am, intending to change who I am. So remember that we are becoming who God calls us to be. We are not of the world. Our identity is not found in the world. It's found in God. And many times, let me say, most of the times in our humility, we feel very inadequate. We don't feel like we are now belonging to the king of the jungle family. We feel a lot smaller than that. We feel weaker than that. And we as the people of God have to live in this way. And how important that is. And we respond, thirdly, um, by influencing the world, not being influenced by the world. We are called to influence the world. Jesus uses language like light and darkness, right? Salt of the earth, assuming that there is decay around us. Salt, which is used as a preservative. He says, you are to influence the world. In the last passage, we didn't read in verse 9 and on, but here he says, don't be so concerned about what people outside the church does. Now today, we look at the world around us. You look at your social media and all the things that are happening around us, the political discussions, uh, the agendas of the liberals, and you see it all around us. A lot of it is unbiblical, and your energy might go towards that, but really, Hey, we are not influenced by them. We're here to influence the world. Um, the Corinthian church was influenced by the world around them. And they said, oh, if that is acceptable to the world around, I guess we will be like them. We will sound like them. We will talk like them. We will believe like them. But the church was called to be a very peculiar people, a very different people. Historians all throughout the, the uh, uh, through church history, outside historians have often spoke of the church as a very weird, particular, peculiar group of people. Some have accused Christians of being, oh, uh, they call everyone brothers and sisters. Um, they have accused the church of, oh, being cannibals. They talk about drinking blood, eating flesh. They didn't understand what the church was like, so they look at the church as very odd. We are called to be a peculiar people, different from the world, and yet influencing the world. There's a little test we're going to take here. Uh, there's a little chart. We can shoot that up. Now, this was part of an experiment done back in the 50s by Dr. Solomon Ash, and they had a group of people, and they said, okay, the target line which of the three, A, B, or C, is the same length as the target line? And um, if you want to, you could tell someone next to you, right? Or whatever it is. It's A, obviously. No, okay, so it's C, 
Um, right? Uh, so the experiment went in the, 60, in the 50s at Swarthmore College. They did this experiment. And you could take that down. Um, everyone's like, ah, oh, maybe C's a little short. Okay, so anyway, so there was an experiment that was done. They wanted to see how people would conform to others. The power of uh, social pressure. And they would bring in a person that didn't know, and they would bring in seven others. The seven others were now told to pick the wrong one on purpose. But one person would come in, and they had no idea. And so they would say, okay, come on in. Welcome, participants. Okay, person A, you know, uh, what do you think? A. Person B, A, 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 A. Comes to the person. They're going, uh, A, right? They would pick the wrong one, right? Uh, uh, and so when they did the whole experiment, 75% of the people went along with the wrong answer. 25% obviously did it. But three-fourths just went along because everyone said it. And they, when they were asked why, number one, they said, I didn't want to be ridiculed or thought of as partic uh, particular. Like, that was the word, particular. I didn't want them to think of me as a particular uh, weird person, I didn't want to stand out. So they said, I just picked what everyone else picked. Number, the second reason they said was, I thought there was something wrong with my eyes. So maybe they were right and my eyes are wrong. That's legitimate. But the first reason, I don't want people to think something weird of me. And when everyone around us seemingly seems to now say, hey, we're going to live in the lifestyle of the Corinthians. We're going to go and say this is all acceptable. That your truth and my truth, though it's different, it's all the same. And we start hearing that. And especially on our college campuses, we hear that over and over. Before we know, 75% will just say, I, I, everyone else is saying it. Everyone else is changing the vocabulary and the passions of what they want. Um, I know I grew up as a Christian. I don't know. We are called to influence them, not be influenced so easily. Jesus says in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who is in heaven. Let it shine. Have the courage when it's the right time, in the right place, to have a discussion. Not just to argue for the sake of arguing or to humiliate someone, but to say, well, I, let me talk to you about that. Or you say you're a Christian, let me talk to you about that. This is what God says. How do we reconcile the two? And we influence the world around us. You know, um, in the second century, there was a Christian work that was found. It was someone had written a letter defending the Christian church, describing the Christians in the second century. And the the letter is called the Epistle to Diognetus. Diognetus. And I want to read a chunk of this. And this is how per peculiar the people of God were. This is how he wrote about Christians in the second century. They dwell in their own countries, but, sim but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, 
but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They invite people to the table. They invite people to come to the table. They eat together. They banquet together. They invite different people to this. But their bed is sacred. They don't live out their personal passions in this way. And I love this description. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. And so we are called today. We read this. This message 20 years ago would have felt much different than it does today. And the world around us, when we read the background and we look at it, it sure seems very similar to what we see in Corinth here today. And yes, so we are a people who are called to keep influencing the world. Let me encourage you to be very discerning on what you listen to, who you watch, who you follow online, whatever. The amount of hours we spend listening to this will eventually influence us. Let me encourage you to think for a moment. If it is something outside of the biblical way of life, if what they share is different, to kind of pause to say, I'm not going to follow this. I'm not going to listen. To be discerning in what we take in. To remember to become who we are. You are the children of God. You are saints. You are perfect in God's eyes already because of Christ. Now live that out. Don't live to the standards of the world. And thirdly, to love every person. Love with truth. Love with grace. Love by sharing how they might have life eternal. Love by sharing how they might come right before God. That we as the people of God, living under the blood of Christ, the unleavened bread as we are, as we remember Him, remember identity, why we live, how we live, in the world around us today. Let us be peculiar in this way, a people who live for Christ and in Christ. Let's pray, could we? Lord, we thank you, and um, Lord, when we read a passage like this, God, it sounds all so familiar. And Lord, uh, we as your people, God, would you help us? We as your church, would you help us to stand strong in truth and grace? Lord God, to share your love with those who need it, remembering that they are spiritual beings in need of you. God, so help us to shine bright. Help us to share the truth and love in our workplace, at our schools, with our neighbors, with our friends, God. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.